Welcome to Zero Knowledge, a podcast where we explore the latest in blockchain technology and the decentralized web. The show is hosted by me, Anna. And me, Frederick. Today, we talk with Robert from Definity, a new type of proof-of-stake blockchain that aims to have high scalability and governance built in. Hi, Frederick. Hi, Anna. Today, we're going to be uh, speaking about the Definity project. Um, Definity is building a new kind of public decentralized cloud computing resource, and this is a this is basically sitting on a new blo- blockchain computer that is similar to Ethereum. Definity aims to have improved performance, higher scalability, and built-in governance. And we're sitting here with Robert Lauko. Uh, he is a research associate at Definity. Robert, do you want to just introduce yourself? Um, hi, Anna, and hi, Frederick. Um, thanks for having me here. Um, yes, sure, I will um, be pleased to introduce myself. So I'm a lawyer by profession. I've been working for different courts in Switzerland as a legal clerk, but I've also been uh, interested in computer science since my teen years. So, and, and I'm still interested, and when I first heard about blockchain or, or Bitcoin at the beginning, I was intrigued at the first minute and this was maybe in 2013 and then I, I kept reading and reading and researching the whole um, science that you can find on the internet and it it was very interesting to see how it all developed and and how other systems like proof of stake based systems in ethereum and, and smart contracts came um, out and yeah it was a really interesting experience how did you how did you find affinity what got you what what got you involved with this project so uh, it, it was by mere luck or chance i mean i started to write some blog articles and where i had some ideas about how to create like an alternative system to both proof of work and proof of stake where you could like improve the decentralization uh, with regard to yeah, how to you, how can you make sure that you have more and more like a real community that can um, participate and contribute to the network? And somehow some guy from a conference noticed this article, and he was like he gave me or encouraged me to send this article to to firms, and and that was and, and somehow I just realized that. That Definitive was working on a system where they have like identities with deposits, and I had the same or similar idea in mind, and, and so I just reached out to them, and they they got interested immediately in, in what I wrote in, in my article, and so we got into a conversation, and it was really interesting, and so yeah, I got involved with them. Speaking of Definity, how how big is the company? Like, what's the size of the team, and and how is it structured? Well, in total, we are like twenty people. Most of them are based in Palo Alto, in the Silicon Valley. But the company itself is like structured as a foundation um, that's incorporated in Zug, Switzerland. 
So your background, you're coming from legal. Was the part of this that interested you? I mean, I, I understand to, you've also kind of delved into the technology side, but are you looking as, as sort of a lawyer by trade, what part of Definity really attracted you? Like what was the part of this protocol that got you? It was really the technical side of it. I'm interested in the legal challenges that blockchains pose in general, but I mean, with Definities, it was really the technical improvements and the technical ideas that I thought was really outstanding. And, and I still think they are like outstanding. If, if you see what's possible with this technology, then Definity really... Is Definity open source? Definity will be open source. It's partly open source, but will release the, the parts bit by bit. So, but will I mean, you, on GitHub, there is the Definity um, repository where you can find a number of projects or sub-projects with open source code. What uh, programming language do you guys work in? Well, mostly it's Haskell, so it's functional programming. We also oh, wow. <laughs> Frederick is like a Haskell expert. That's awesome. <laughs> great. <laughs> well, it's great to hear. <laughs> it's yeah, hard it's, to find great... It, it, it's a, it's a recurring topic on this uh, podcast that I like Haskell. I worked in Haskell, I don't know, maybe five years before switching to Rust for uh, Parity. But um, yeah, I, I, I love that. I love that you're building in Haskell. Yes. I, I mean, Haskell has become like maybe the top standard for blockchain or not for every project, but it has some very nice... Yeah, as a very rust, as a rust-focused company, I don't know if we fully agree with you there, but yeah. Okay. <laughs> Ish. Got it. Yes. <laughs> so we have other languages as well. We have some parts built in Go, and of course, the, the low-level crypto lab library, um, the BLS signature is built in C++ and Assembler, and so not everything is in Haskell. Cool. Is the BLS... Um stuff open sourced and is is that like a, a previous work kind of implementation or did you start writing that from scratch with the company well it's a good question we have hired a guy from japan his name is shigeo mitsunori and he has been working on the bls crypto library i'm not sure if he have maybe had already released something before joining our company but his he has improved it after he joined. Mm. So, cool. Uh, you, you mentioned that uh, some of the stuff was on GitHub. Uh, let's just uh, get a shout out so we can uh, get our listeners to to start looking at stuff. What's the what's the repository? What's the org name on GitHub? Well, I think it's just Definity. Yes, it's GitHub.com/slash/Definity. So last weekend, uh, we did this thing. Um, I think actually we mentioned it in the last podcast too, but we, uh, we did this white paper roundtable uh, at my house. And Frederick called in. Um, and this was, we just brought together about like seven, seven people to talk about a white paper. And we actually chose to do the Definity white paper. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> so we've delved deep into your white paper. Very interesting. Uh, we had... Yeah, and I, I think it would be really cool to sort of start talking about some of the the things that we were exploring and some of the questions that we had. Frederick, do you want to take the first one on this? Uh, sure. Um, I think the 
the thing that's really unique for Definity is the the random beacon. It's the randomness generation. That's right. And um, I guess as a general question, and especially for those that haven't really read the paper yet, can you explain um, sort of how how does this randomness get generated? I, I guess that's my first question, and then we can sort of delve into how it gets used. But as a first, how does it get generated? So, yes, as you said, the randomness really stands at the heart of Definity, and it's generated in a completely decentralized manner. So it's generated by groups of 400 nodes, and these nodes, before being able to generate random numbers, they need to come to agreement on a, dis uh, on a distributed key, so they, they need to um, run a protocol called distributed key generation where every participant ends up with having like a public and a private key pair and all the other, so every node will know of the public um, keys of every other peer. So, and, and having set up this, there you can run a very lightweight um, protocol where every participant or every um, node of this out of this 400 can like sign the previous output of the randomness beacon so there is a beacon there is a beacon that's like a chain of random numbers and you take an existing random number and this whole group can then sign it with their threshold key because this distributed key generation protocol allows them to sign or everyone can sign it and create a, a signature share and then you only need to combine or aggregate at least 200 or 50 percent of all the signature shares to like recreate one unique combined signature and this combined signature is unique in the sense that it doesn't depend which subset of this 400 nodes or which 200, at least 200 nodes created it, it will be always the same. So it's unique and it's also like unpredictable because nobody can predict which, what would be the outcome unless it has 200 or at least 50% of the nodes under his control. So it's basically a chain of random numbers and you take the last random number and run this threshold signature protocol on it and then you aggregate all the signature shares and then you end up with a new number then you take this number and you can run it over and over again and then so you can create like a chain of random numbers so this signature it's it's um i, I thought you put that really well it's unique meaning um it doesn't matter which subset of uh the key parts that create the signature and it's non-deterministic, but uh, what makes it non-deterministic? Is it the order or, like, um, yeah, what makes it non-deterministic? As opposed to existing or alternative systems, there is no last revealer. In other systems, you have, like, um, a group of people who somehow try to create a random number together, but there is always the last participant that is needed to create the result. And if the, this last participant, the participants just 
quits or aborts a protocol, then there must be some other um, participant that steps in to, to uh, complete the, uh, the generation of a random number. And by this um, possibility of aborting or not aborting, the last revealer has an influence of at least, or it has an influence of one bit on the outcome, because he can check the last revealer will know which would, be, which would be the outcome if he participates and which would be the outcome if he doesn't. And then he can decide whether or not to participate. And this problem is not existent with the threshold um, random number generator because there is no last revealer. There is a last revealer, but it doesn't matter who is the last revealer because the outcome will be the same no matter which subset participated. This is the last man problem that you just described, I guess? Yes, exactly. Going from the randomness, you or, or you mentioned these groups and the, the participants in this network. Um, what's What underlies this is what you talked about before with identities and, and identities being staked. Um, what is actually an identity? Is it just like an account and you, you have some amount staked to it? So basically an identity is created by the system the user can um, decide to become a miner, and for that matter, he has to deposit a fixed number of stake or a, a fixed amount of stake on the network. And by uh, by making this deposit, he will get an identity in return from the system. And once he gets his identity, he can get or he will be elected into random groups of 400 nodes and will participate in these groups. You call them, you actually use the term miners here. Are they not more like validators? Um, they are in the sense validators that they don't have to do like proof of work as in Bitcoin. They only do validation of transactions and computational work that is actually needed to perform and to execute the transactions sent over the network. They don't do any other computations or, or useless computations. So, but we are still, I mean, we call them miners in our white paper just for better understanding or, yes. I mean, it is essentially still mining in that you, you do do computation, you run all the transactions, you run all the program code that lives in a transaction. So exactly. I, I suppose the only thing is that you get away with or do away with the, the useless work that a miner normally does. So with this identity system, um, you claim to achieve civil resistance, but but um, I mean, is that only through economic incentive? I making the stake so large that it's uh, improbable that it, someone will do a civil attack, or do you have some other mechanism in place? So basically, I mean, by having this fixed amount or fixed size deposits, the number of identities per economic entity will vary. So I mean. Rich people can afford to have more identities than poor people. And so it will reflect your economic power. So your computate or your power on the network and, and on the validating will validation will reflect your economic power. So in that sense, it's a proof of a proof of stake system in the real sense. I think that's left out of the white paper and, and referred to in the upcoming um, incentives paper, but uh, you you have fixed size deposits, so you, it's like in a normal or in other proof of stake 
systems, uh, they usually propose that um, you have a minimum limit on the stake that you can deposit just like to make sure that you actually have something real at stake, uh, but usually you don't propose an upper limit. So what you're saying is it's a fixed specific amount that you can deposit as your stake. Yeah, it's basically a fixed amount. So maybe we will need to have some mechanism to change this amount to reflect the economic value of the coin. And we also have a protocol governance mechanism that has the, as its task to like set the economic parameters. So this fixed size is not to be won't be fixed forever, but it's like it's not variable in the sense that you can deposit any amount to get one ID. You just mentioned you sort of touched on governance there. And I know that that's like a big part of what you guys are working on with algorithmic governance and the blockchain nervous system. And can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, uh, sure. So every blockchain needs to have like the ability to adapt to new challenges and to new technologies and to adopt them and to update the system in some way. So this is one part of it, why we think we need um, a governance mechanism. And the other thing is that there is this concept called this law. It is a valid concept where you say everything that gets recorded on the blockchain will be there forever and it cannot be changed. So if you have some contract, in, maybe even the legal sense, you should always be bound to that contract. We, on the other hand, think that this view might turn out as a, a bit limited or problematic because as we have seen with hacks and the DAO issue and, and other issues on existing networks, you will need to have some kind of mechanism to revert in, in, in the catastrophes or if there is really a very serious thing that happens. So, and, and I mean, there is, it is possible with every network to make a hard fork and to revert back as we have seen with Ethereum, for example, but this is not a very a neat way or a smooth way to update your network or revert very... Uh, Make decisions, yeah. Exactly. So, so this is why we think we need a governance mechanism where you can have decisions and have votes on decisions so the stakeholders, the identities who have deposited stake could vote on these decisions and the clients would then automatically update their system if there is a majority. Well, I mean, so if you have a fixed staking amount, then you don't necessarily have, like, are there certain individuals who will have higher, like, will they, will there, will there be some individuals who actually have more power over others in this system or not because they're actually equal? So basically um, with this, with our fixed size deposit um, philosophy, we will have, or not everyone will have the same amount of identities. So I see. Okay, it's per identity. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so I mean, your your abs- so your total stake will also reflect your total power. But there is a very important um, innovation to that that we think will make it even better or, or or more powerful. And that is that people can like follow other people's votes. So this is what creates this kind of neural network where experts or people with higher with higher credibility or, or which are deemed to be experts can 
receive votes from other people and so can get more power on the outcome than maybe just someone who is rich. Hmm. This is like just, this is delegated proof of stake, no? Well, I'm not sure if, I mean, in delegated proof of stake, it is, it is the delegation is with regard to the consensus on the blocks or, or the transactions. But in a way, yes, you, you have like, it's not just a delegation, a simple delegation. It's a, a non-trend or it's a more complex system of follow relationships that can cross over and it, it will be like a graph structure. But, but in a sense, you can say it's similar. Instead of like in a normal delegated proof of stake system, if you, I mean, like you're saying, it, the, it then pertains to the block creation and, and consensus mechanism. So if you delegate to a block creator, you might get some portion of reward, rewards. But you, if you delegate to your friend, they might not ever be creating blocks. So you won't necessarily get a reward for delegating to your friend. Um, but if you delegate your vote to your friend and your friend follows or delegates to someone else then then that cascades down and you you actually just say i i want to vote the same as my buddy whatever he votes for um and so that's sort of exactly so this is your idea of the central nervous system that's what you mean when you say blockchain nervous system is that what you is that the idea that it all flows towards the brain kind of is that your metaphor yes i've been i was a little confused about it so yes. i wanted to just check that because <laughs> i yeah I mean, there are a lot of things to be determined and fleshed out, but in a nutshell, it is really this structure of follow relationships that should uh, can, uh, or funnel or canalize the, the, the votes to the brains or the, the, the people who you think would be the best to decide on the future of the network. I'm, I'm super interested in this um, on-chain governance thing because uh, Polkadot will also have some some on-chain governance aspects and uh, the way it's being built is um, the the state machine itself is written in Wasm and lives on chain and uh, you can sort of you could in theory I don't know if this will, will, will if it will be like this but you could in theory have a proposal to change the state machine at a very fundamental level that gets voted on by participants in the network and then um, you commit a transaction with what the new state machine is, and that that gets distributed to all the clients. You kind of auto updates the state machine that in how everything works in that way. So, can can you talk about what your technical solution is there, sort of, and how this like are you planning on? So another for as an example, another angle to go at is what. Uh, I think it's EO, no, who proposed this? Tezos proposed this. Uh, they have an OCaml client, and uh, they basically said that you, you they just want to put a hash of the client or of the code uh, on-chain, and then you auto-download whatever matches that hash. Well, uh, it's exactly, as far as I know, it's this solution. You will like have a vote on a hash, and then everyone can download the code that matches with that hash. I've, I've said it many times on this podcast and uh, many times in general. I'm a huge proponent of having multiple implementations of any blockchain clients. But doesn't this sort of restrict you? Doesn't this prevent having multiple implementations? It's a good question. Um, I mean, it, it, 
you have to ask if you could, I mean, turn out as a client this or as a user this auto update function. So, I mean, theoretically, someone else could create an, a client that doesn't have this function. So, it is it would be possible to not follow this. But I mean, it's a bit a question of, of would you be c compatible with the network? So is it like a soft fork where you just don't want to have all the new like features that will affect your client? Or would you refuse to, uh, to um, take an update that is really fundamental? So, and that would, I mean, get us to back to the problem of hard forks. I mean, I, I suppose in essence you could... Um or in theory, you could, uh, instead of voting on a single hash, you could vote on a tuple of hashes and uh, each hash representing uh, a different implementation of a client. Um, and it just has to be, you know, you just have to force the community to review multiple implementations, I suppose. That's an interesting um, proposal. Yeah, I mean, then it, it might become more difficult for a user that's not really technical and not a technical person to assess which solution would be the best and, and maybe we'll just take the one that got the most votes but it would still give people like an option to choose from interesting we have to think about it <laughs> at some point uh you guys mentioned this double notarization this is, i'm actually going back into like just white paper topics this is actually just a question that i have but you mentioned uh this double notarization you only like so you mention it but then it wasn't totally clear to me if you actually go through the full like random committee notarization twice or if you were referring to something else i'm not sure i mean if we are really using the term double notarization we have like two confirmations for finality i think anna is talking about there is a scenario in which a block can be notarized, like two different blocks can be notarized. Oh. Uh, so the question is then sort of how do you resolve this uh, okay. um, issue of having, you know, two two or multiple things notarized? Okay, I see. So yes, our protocol is like not a full con or not running a full consensus on each block. So it might happen that two or even multiple blocks per round can get notarized, so they can get more than 50% of the votes. And, I mean, for that, we have, like, a mechanism called the probabilistic slot protocol that will eventually, like in Bitcoin, with a ranking mechanism, will ensure that over time forks, or over time very quickly forks, will be collapsed. As long as the top-ranked, block proposers, according to our probabilistic um, slot scheme, as long as they are honest, this situation shouldn't really happen. So there should only be one neutralized block, but it can happen if the top ranked um, minor or block proposal is malicious and, 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 and tries with adverse timing to get two blocks notarized at the same time, then the time until the fork will um, be collapse it, or the finality will be delayed a bit but not by much so forks should collapse very quickly what happens to the so so if it is if it is resolved and it goes forward with one of them what happens to the other one well this it will get orphaned like in a chain based simple chain based um, system 
Because, I mean, we have two kind of ranking mechanisms. One is for the notaries, which is based on the current block or the block for the current round. So the notaries just look at the current block and the rank of the block proposal in order to choose which block to notarize. Whereas the block makers, I mean, the miners in the real sense, they will look at the whole chain. They will rank or they have a ranking function which takes the whole chain and every block of the chain and outputs a chain weight. And this chain weight, it's analogous to the chain difficulty or mining work on Bitcoin. So, and by having this, the, the miners will only build on top of the, the, mo the heaviest chains and the notaries will only notarize or in most cases notarize the, the block with the highest block weight. So that should eventually resolve this kind of forks. Speaking of um, malicious behavior, going back to incentives a little bit as well, do you propose to have um, stake slashing or anything like that? We haven't really... Um, tackle this question in our white paper, what we will probably have or need to have a system where um, a block maker who equivocates and creates two blocks would be penalized. So, yeah. And it could be done by slashing its deposit. I mean, uh, in general, it seems like a really hard problem to me to keep um, all these nodes online. So I mean, you're targeting, I don't know, 10,000 validators, 400 in a group most people will probably be running their nodes on Amazon for the time being, at least. And if all of Amazon goes down, you know, is there anything in the protocol that uh, essentially detects you as malicious if you don't respond, basically, if you go down? That's a very good question. I think we cannot, like, require from every validator or miner to be online all the time, so 100% service level, that wouldn't be realistic and that would really pose a risk. So I think we will need to have some kind of mechanism that requires you to perform a minimum work, but it, it doesn't slash your um, deposit if you just miss one block. Yeah. So that wouldn't be fair and, and it would be quite risky to, and, and it would also deter people from becoming a miner because they out of fear of losing their stake yeah i mean uh, in your sort of fault tolerance assumptions you usually i think it's um you can tolerate a third of nodes being byzantine well you can tolerate more but depends on what probability you want on, on everything going well um but you typically i think talk about a third right uh, yes, uh, it's a bit, uh, one has, has to distinguish two um, questions here because there is the whole population of, of nodes that are involved in mining, so the, the whole set of identities on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have these groups of 400 people or 400 IDs. And I mean, to guarantee security, we need at least 50% of honest nodes per group. But due to statistical effects that are, that are related to random sampling, we need to have like a security margin. And we set this margin in a way to correspond to two-thirds. So the two-thirds is like a well-known theoretical limit as well. But in our 
with with this 400, the, the size of 400 for every group, it, it matches quite well. So we will have like a very high security. So I'm not sure it's maybe one out in a billion years or something like that, that the group could be like affected by a more than that. I uh, tried to do to do the math and worked it out to be one in a trillion blocks is going to be Byzantine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I got it right though, but something like that. I mean, it's, it's obviously super low probabilities and one in a billion years, something like that. Um, but uh, I mean, going back to then, does it count as a validator being Byzant- Byzantine or like what would happen if half the nodes in a group just went down, went offline. Even if they aren't really Byzantine, uh, what happens then? Okay, that, that's also a good question. If they just go offline, they could not do any direct harm to the network. They couldn't like they couldn't do anything because the network would just halt. Yeah, they're not going to propose uh, wrong blocks or anything like they're that. Just they're offline, just then, offline, so yeah. the network would stop at that point. So the question is whether these nodes would eventually come online after a certain time because they have a very huge incentive to come online because they their stakes are really at risk if they just stop. And we are also looking into like maybe some kind of fallback mechanisms, but yeah, this is a work in progress. You could like even re- rescue a network if a group goes offline. So it- Definity, I mean, uh, there's what's in the white paper and what we've talked about here a little bit, but in hearing other things online in other podcasts or reading things online, it seems like Definity is trying to do a lot more than than what is just in the white paper. So, I mean, we've talked a little bit about governance, but there's also, you have some plan for sharding. You know, you've talked about uh, writing a VM that will, you know, be more performant. Uh, you've talked about a test net. You you talked about uh, a new P2P networking layer. Um, w- what's the progress of all of these other projects? And is that something that is all happening in parallel or is there a roadmap there? We are working now on the VASM part. So the, the virtual machine is very important uh, for the moment. We just started working on sharding in parallel. So it's the theoretical work. We are exploring different options and avenues for sharding. And, on, uh, and at the same time, we also hired someone from Google who is an expert in, besides Wasm, is an expert in, in, in domain-specific languages and, and programming language theory as such. So he's also working on that side of the project. And of course, we are also working on the peer-to-peer layer and the crypto libraries are still developed further. So there are a lot of threats going on at the same time. So you, you mentioned Wasm is is so for those, uh, I'm so used to saying Wasm now that it's become a thing for me. But <laughs> uh, for those uh, that don't know what Wasm is, it's WebAssembly, which is a, a kind of new standard for running uh, low-level code uh something assembly like but that can be run in a browser um will will your vm be wasm completely yes that's our plan so we will be able to run every um, smart contract or every application that 
is written in a programming language that has a compiler that compiles to Wasm. So in that sense, it's open to every language. Have you made a Haskell dialect for uh, Haskell smart contracts yet? I want it. Uh, we have in our testnet, in the demo version that was shown by Dominic, um, that's still on our homepage or website, um, admit it's a limited version of a Haskell um, smart contract language for our blockchain. How do you work around the runtime being, like the Haskell runtime is huge. Uh, so when you compile Haskell to Wasm, you actually get the whole runtime with you as well. Uh, how do you like deal with having to deploy that to a blockchain? Oh, I'm not sure about the details on that. I mean, I'm not even sure if, if that's the main thing that we will have. Our system would be open to any language, so it's not limited to Haskell. Bit of background here. I mean, we, we have a Wasm VM on Kovan, and we plan on having Wasm for Polkadot and everything else as well. And uh, we have, we're writing some contracts in Rust, uh, mostly experimental still at this stage. Um, and the nice thing about Rust is you have no runtime at all. So uh, the contracts end up being very small. And uh, I've tried compiling Haskell to, to Wasm a couple of times, and it, it, it's kind of a beast. So I was just curious if you'd actually, if you'd solved that problem, I would have uh, given you a lot of love. But uh, <laughs> maybe you have, maybe you have, we'll, we'll see. That could be a follow-up subject, maybe, with some of our Haskell engineers. So you're mentioning this P2P layer as well. What's, what's the idea with that? How does it aim to be different? Uh, well, I mean, we sort of need to have a very efficient peer-to-peer -peer or broadcast layer for all the lockmakers and miners or notaries, nodes, because they need to, in order to achieve the, the, the fast finality, which is in a second or just only a few seconds, we need to have a very fast communication or broadcast network between the miners. And I mean, we are looking into maybe separating. So there would be like a miners relay network, broad relay network where every user or light client could also get the blocks from that one. So, and there are rules um, in the mining, the miners relay network. There are so a set of rules, which artifacts are relayed in which cases and what is the timing for them. So we don't want to re relay things that are outdated and not needed anymore for the consensus protocol in order to make it more efficient. We are looking into several systems um, or Kademli and others. I mean, there are a lot of overlay networks like Cord and everything and we'll need or Couch graphs. We'll need to, like we are doing experiments and performance tests on these things to see which network offers the best performance. We just wrote um, an implementation of libp2p, which there's some pros and cons to to the standard. It's if you're aiming to like do the most efficient, like on a byte level, send as few bytes as possible, efficient protocol, then libp2p is probably not the best choice. But it's uh, it aims to be so generic that you can build like all of these different kind of sub networks, and that's why we're interested in it because we have the same problem in Polkadot. Basically, we have different uh, actors in this system that need to have um, like maintain their own subnets essentially. Yes, it's, it's a very important aspect. I think that you have you adapt the system to the different needs of your subnets or the different needs of the actors that need to communicate with each other. 
Is it possible for a normal person to play with the testnet in any way? Um, at the moment, the testnet is not publicly made available, but it should eventually be or, may, or presented to the public. What is your timeline? What's the timeline with Definity? Where are you guys at? Well, for the testnet or in general? In general, like where, where are you at as a project? What's your, what do you see? When do you see it coming yeah. out? What's going to happen? Well, we are really <laughs> wanting to or planning to get our first version out this year. It's hard to tell in details, but yes. <laughs> yeah, it always is. Um, yeah, so what, what would you say like compares? So we, we, while we were reading the, the white paper, we were talking about other protocols I mean, they're similar in general to, I mean, we were looking at other consensus mechanisms, but what do you see as being comparable to Definity? What's a, what's a comparable project? The most comparable project, uh, maybe it's, um, I'm not sure I remember the name, it's Thunderella. It's not even a project. I think it's a protocol that was presented at Stanford University. And uh, I mean, it's based, it's, it's also different, but it's, it, has, it combines like a slow fully Byzantine fault-tolerant tolerant protocol and a slower um, chain-based normal um, proof, or maybe it's not proof of work, but just a blockchain protocol. So they have this kind or a similar kind of fast finality when everything goes well. And if some bad thing happens or a malicious blockmaker shows up, then they fall back to a much slower system. Well, Definity is a bit, I think it, 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 it is different in the sense that it doesn't need to run a full consensus on each block. So it's not really comparable to Thunderella and also not really comparable to Algorand and Ouroboros. But, I mean, it's a bit best of two words, if I may say it so, because it's like an optimistic protocol that is very fast if everything goes well and it's a bit slower if there is some problem. But it's not extremely slow like it doesn't fall back into a very slow protocol mode cool what was the name of that again thunderella thunderella yes cool i've I've never heard of it i have to look that up yeah i think it's really it's interesting because they have a very fast finality if everything goes well but the, the trade-off is that the finality will massively degrade if, if there's some problem so we're we seem to be oh I'm definitely out of questions. <laughs> I've covered all my grounds. I don't know about you, Frederick. I, I have a million more questions, but I think we have to wrap up at some point. So <laughs> I think um, it was a great talk, and I hope it was uh, interesting to our listeners as well. And, and there's, there's a million things in here that we can do full episodes on. Uh, but I think I want to say thank you to Robert for joining us and uh, bearing with our questions here. Thank you, Frederick, for having me. And thank you, Anna, as well. So it was a very interesting talk and we covered a lot of interesting points. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much. And uh, to our audience, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs>